Isaiah chapter 1. Several years ago when I was uh, living in Washington, D.C. for a season, uh, I would often go for runs along the mall, so where all these monuments are. And depending on how far I went, I would go to a certain monument and uh, turn around and, and start heading start heading home. And few of them struck me as one that I, I didn't really know of till I lived there. It's the Korean War Veterans Memorial. Some of you can maybe picture it. Most of us don't know that one. It's not one of the ones that's maybe as well known or as well visited. And in particular, four words that were etched into the stone, uh, this dark gray granite uh, over the fountain of the Korean War Veterans Memorial. Those four words are, freedom is not free. Freedom is not free. I hope you will have opportunity tomorrow to reflect on our freedom and to remember those who paid for our freedom with their lives. Uh, We're going to have all sorts of opportunities tomorrow. Uh, Probably a cookout, maybe time with family, maybe plant your garden. I hope in the midst of all of that, you would remember why we have Memorial Day. That's my encouragement to you, not just as a fellow citizen, but as a Christian citizen. I think we have a special responsibility to remember well and give God thanks. Let's do that as we begin, and then we'll look at Hosea chapter 1. Father God, we thank you for this nation and the freedoms. We thank you for those who gave their lives. Father, we pray that we would be diligent to pause and remember. We pray that you would give Comfort to families uh, that are gathering without those even around their table because of this sacrifice. We pray now that you would speak to us through your word, that you would use Hosea chapter 1 to draw us near and to even push us towards the cross. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The nation of Israel is divided. And it's been that way for like 150 years. This is not recent history. How did it happen? How did it go down? Well, the tribe of Ephraim, along with the other tribes in the north, led the 10 tribes to revolt against the tribes in the south and established the kingdom of Israel under Jeroboam, who was an Ephraimite. As king, That's why the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, is often called, shorthand, Ephraim. So now the northern kingdom, it's called Israel or Ephraim, and the southern kingdom is called Judah. And here's what you need to know. Every king in the north was wicked. Every king in the north did wickedly, ruled wickedly. We mentioned Jeroboam. So in order to make sure that Israelites in the north wouldn't be tempted to travel down to Jerusalem to worship God at the temple, to say, all right, I'm going to make gods. I'm going to make two golden calves. I'm going to set them up. I'm going to create my own, not Levite, but my own priestly system. I'm going to have my own religious feasts and holidays. I'm going to set up another religion. So Jeroboam didn't just simply like forget about God. Like, oh, time went by, he faded in the memory. No, he took steps to make people forget about God, to set up a rival religion. Fast forward now in the northern kingdom to the seventh king, also from the tribe of Ephraim, 
And he was also wicked. His name was Ahab. Maybe you remember King Ahab. Listen to how his life and reign is summarized. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he took the, for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. So you have the Canaanite god Baal being worshipped in Israel by the Israelite king. Of course, God raised up Elijah. Maybe you remember his ministry in the time of King Ahab. One lesser known story uh, from Ahab's reign, maybe one that doesn't quite make it into the flannel graph rotation in Sunday school, is, is I got I to gotta admit, this is my immaturity. It reminded me of the emperor's new groove. Some of you have seen this movie, right? So uh, the... the uh, Emperor Cusco, do you remember this guy? So early in the movie, Emperor Cusco basically pulls a King Ahab. So here's the story from 1 Kings 21. You can, you can read it this afternoon. King Ahab has a palace in this place called Jezreel. And he wants to add, what maybe some of you are going to add this weekend, a vegetable garden. Seems very reasonable. King wants a garden. The only problem is this lovely plot of land, clearly fertile, that's next to his palace is already owned by a God-fearing Israelite who owns a vineyard. So what does he do? Well, he does what we might expect a king to do. He says, give me your vineyard. And then he does the equivalent of saying, please, you know. Uh, It reminded me of, uh, I was... Uh, kayaking recently on the Flint River, and there was this stretch where on both sides of the river, any tree over about this wide, someone had put, keep out, no trespassing, and then spray-painted concentric circles around it so you could see every single sign. And I'm coming along, clearly I'm not getting off here, right? I'm going to keep in the river. I hope they don't fire shots. I mean, this, you could clear this person did not want you on their property. And about two-thirds of the way through this long stretch of warning signs, under one of the signs there was a handwritten sign that said, please. I about died, right? So Ahab says, give me the vineyard, Naboth. Give it over. And I'll, I'll give you another vineyard or I'll even pay you money if you want, right? Just kind of like, please. I'll, I'll play polite. But, but I want that. Emperor Cusco vibes all over the place. And this God-fearing man said, in effect, this land belongs to God. He's given it to my family, and it's to stay in my family. There's laws about this. I can't just give it to you. He says no to the king. Ahab does what you would expect from Emperor Cusco. He goes to his room and sulks. His wicked wife comes up with a plan. She'll have Naboth executed on false charges of cursing God. So two witnesses are planted, the false charges are made, and an innocent, God-fearing Israelite man is stoned to death. Naboth from Jezreel is dead. 
And King Ahab takes possession of his vineyard for his veggie garden. So Baal worshiping king gets the land and the God fearing man from Jezreel is dead. His blood unjustly spilt. So you get the idea from that little anecdote that these kings are no good. Let's fast forward again to the 13th wicked king in the north. His name is also Jeroboam, Jeroboam II, reigning about 100 years after his namesake. He reigns for 41 years. During that time, he is successful politically. He expands the borders of the land, taking much of Syria for the kingdom of Israel in the north. This is how 2 Kings 12 summarized Jeroboam II's reign. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam which he made Israel to sin. So God does what you might not expect. He raises up a shepherd, a farmer. And he calls him just recently now to prophesy, to challenge the idolatry, to challenge the corruption during these prosperous days in Israel. His name is Amos. In just a few years, still during Jeroboam II's reign, he's going to raise up another prophet to go to Assyria to warn Nineveh. His name is Jonah. And it's during this time, it's in this context, that God calls yet another prophet. The nation doesn't sense it. Things are going swimmingly. But this prophet will become to be known rightly as the deathbed prophet. Because he's the last prophet before Israel falls. His name is Hosea. And Hosea is called not just to speak about Israel's unfaithfulness, but to experience it. And not just to speak of God's faithfulness, but to model it. So Hosea's calling is not an easy one. Again, if you're not already there, you can turn with me to the book of Hosea. Towards the end of your Old Testament, Hosea chapter 1. He's called to warn the northern kingdom of Israel about the coming judgment from the Assyrians because of Israel's generations and generations and generations, decades after decades, some 150 years, some 13 kings of wickedness and idolatry and unfaithfulness and pagan worship. In verses 2 through 9, we begin to see a basic pattern here. Hosea is going to be given a difficult instruction. So God is clearly driving the story. And then he's given a reason for the instruction. So do this for, F-O-R. Here's the reason why I'm calling you to this. This chapter even these verses verses two through nine are set over several years in short the instruction is hard because hosea is called to marry an unfaithful wife and the reason is simple israel has been an unfaithful spouse to god this morning we're going to look at first chapter and the first verse of the second chapter under just two basic points the first is unfaithful spouse point number one unfaithful spouse let me read hosea chapter one verse two again when the lord first spoke through hosea 
The Lord said to Hosea, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by the forsaking or by forsaking the Lord. Hosea is to marry Gomer and God reveals that that Gomer is going to be I might say a prostitute, right? Committing adultery by selling herself to other men. And then notice the word for. It comes towards the end of verse 2. Here's the reason. The land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So the essential background that's assumed here is that Yahweh, God, has entered into a relationship with Israel, his people. Delivering them from Egypt, making a covenant at Sinai through Moses. This covenant is often likened to marriage. There's promises made. Fast forward and we know Israel's worship of other gods has been going on, as we said, for decades. It hasn't changed. The nation is forsaking the true God. Not simply worshiping pagan gods. They, as God's wife, left God to commit what we could call spiritual adultery. So it's a forsaking of the relationship. Do you get that? It's a turning of the back on the spouse. So the language, again, in the letter, in the book rather here, is strong. You have language of whoredom. We might say prostitution, adultery. It's meant to get Israel's attention. It's meant to get our attention. It's strong language even in our ears today. Every year since 2001, Gallup uh, has done a poll of Americans regarding uh, kind of how they rate the morality of, of 19 different behaviors. So the question is something like this. Do you think this behavior is morally acceptable morally unacceptable or it depends over those two decades so from 2001 to 2022 the last time it came out views of the morality of most behaviors not surprisingly if you've been paying attention have become more permissive so over those two decades views of the morality of most things now find themselves at a high point of moral acceptability, including things like divorce, having a baby outside of marriage, gambling, sex between an unmarried man or woman, gay and lesbian relations. Again, if you've just been living in this culture, none of you are surprised by that. You think, why track that? Perhaps the only surprising thing in this Gallup poll that they've done every year for the last now 21 years is that the same behavior has remained consistently low over the years. So Americans' views of this behavior aren't becoming more progressive. In fact, it's the least morally acceptable behavior as of 2022. Less acceptable to Americans than polygamy or human cloning. It's adultery. 89% of Americans still view married men and women having an affair as morally unacceptable. Let me ask you, why do you think that is? Why has adultery or infidelity, what they call here an affair, remained largely unchanged at the bottom of the list 
while our culture has become more and more permissive. Why does it seem so wrong still, whether liberal or conservative, Christian or not? I think it feels wrong because it is wrong, but we need to say more than that. The expectations in marriage are different, right? The deception is personal. Promises have been made before God and these witnesses. And these promises have not been kept. So in our morally confused age, we still think marriage matters. And we still think infidelity, or sorry, fidelity is essential. So we still know that the deception of adultery isn't like other lies. It's deeply personal. It's the rejection of one spouse for another. It's the rejection of the marriage covenant. And so, I think somewhat surprisingly, in the eyes of most Americans, adultery is, in a sense, the only remaining sexual sin. Because of God's relationship with Yahweh and Israel's, sorry, Uh, God's relationship with Israel and Israel's relationship with Yahweh, a, a covenant relationship, their idolatry is spiritual adultery. It's infidelity, unfaithfulness to their spouse. So their sin isn't just law breaking. It isn't just missing the mark. It's personal. It's deeply personal. It's adulterous. Adultery may be the only remaining language that preachers today in America at large can use to describe our sin that most people will still feel. The Bible says you can't have other lovers, whether it's money or stuff or security or family or success or ease or pleasure and be anything but unfaithful to God. Again, Hosea is not just to speak about Israel's unfaithfulness, but to experience it as his wife, Gomer, is to be unfaithful. Look again at verse 3. Remarkably, Hosea obeys the Lord. He marries Gomer, and they have a child, note the end of verse 3, together. Right? Things start out fine. It ends, bore him, that is, bore Hosea, a son. Now another instruction comes with a reason. God will punish the nation of Israel for the unfaithfulness of their kings, including what happened to Naboth, the vineyard owner, in Jezreel. His blood being shed for a vegetable garden. Look at verse 4. And the Lord said to him, call his name, that is, Hosea and Gomer's first son, Jezreel, that is the place where this all went down, Under King Ahab. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu. This is one of the dynasties in the northern kingdom. For the blood of Jehreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So to break the bow is to defeat someone militarily. 
to conquer them and then smash their weapons over your knee, if it, as you will. God promises to do this again and again, fighting for Israel. And here he says, I'm going to do this to Israel. Judgment is coming. Name your son Jezreel. As the story continues, two more children are now conceived. Two more times, God instructs Hosea how to name Two more times, God gives the reason. Israel's been unfaithful. But something changes with the second and the third child. Gomer bore a daughter and another son, but not by Hosea. The language of fatherhood from verse 3 is clearly and blaringly absent. These are children of unfaithfulness. The daughter is named no mercy for God will have no mercy, no more mercy for the idolatry that's continued in the north for 150 years. The son is named not my people. Look at the end of verse nine. For you are not my people and I am not your God. Of course, as Israel was becoming a nation, especially in the book of Leviticus, or sorry, the book of Exodus, again and again, the Lord referred to Israel as my people. These are my people. I've identified with them. They've identified with me. This is a term of affection. This is, this is my son, Israel. So for God to say this gets their attention, should get our attention You're not my people. I'm not your God. You've been unfaithful. It's over. Think about Hosea. Every time he called one of his kids. It'd be reminded both of the pain of Gomer's infidelity. And of the unfaithfulness at the heart of Israel's sin. Hosea was called to experience day in. And day out, in small part, the personal nature of all human sin against God. I want to give you a clue for understanding and I think applying Hosea well, especially as we look at this book over the next few weeks. Lord willing, this will be the first of five sermons through the book of Hosea. And, And here's the clue. You are not Hosea, you are Gomer. That's the clue, right? You are not Hosea. You are Gomer. In the story, we aren't those sinned against. We are first the unfaithful ones. We are the ones whose sin is spiritual adultery against our faithful God. So may the Lord use this book to help us see and feel the personal nature of our sin. We talk about sin as rebellion, and rightly so, but that's not personal in nature. We talk about it as law-breaking, but that's not personal in nature. We talk about it rightly as missing the mark, but that's not personal in nature. When we begin to adopt the Bible's shocking language that our sin against our God is spiritual adultery, oh, now it's personal. Friends, our sin matters because God matters. We're in a relationship with a God who's of infinite worth. And so for us to sin against him is deeply personal 
and deeply significant. It affects the relationship. Point number one, unfaithful spouse. Now let's look at point number two, faithful God. Faithful God, verses 10, 11, and then the first verse in chapter 2. Faithful God, point number two. Notice how verse 10 begins. What a glorious word. Yet. Right? Just when you think it's lights out and the story's over, yet. Yet. Despite decades of unfaithfulness, yet. Despite their being so undeserving, yet. And this yet is in many ways unbelievable. Judgment will not be the final word. Mercy will reign in the end. The deathbed of the nation will become a place of resurrection. Out of death comes life. Through judgment comes salvation. And Hosea doesn't comfort them by saying, okay, let's go back to the law. Let's look forward to a time when you'll start once again to keep the law. No, he doesn't go back to Sinai. He goes back far before that to the covenant made with Abraham. He he goes back to the promise made regarding Abraham's descendants. Specifically, he goes back to the language in verse 10, first part of Genesis 22, where God reiterates his promise from Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 and Genesis 17. Abraham's descendants will be like the sand on the seashore that cannot be counted. Look at Hosea chapter 1, verse 10, the first part. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And then the great reversal begins. The end of verse 10. It's promised to Israel before Hosea is able to experience it himself in his marriage. Let's keep reading verse 10. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. It shall be said to them, children of the living God. Verse 11. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers to one, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. So the promises of a return from exile, a future unified people of God, all under one recognized head. And so they're going to turn to one another and greet one another with a word of welcome, a word of blessing. If the sin is summarized as spiritual adultery, the promise here in 110 and following is of reconciliation. The covenant with Abraham stands because God is faithful. All those who trust in him, who believe God, will receive mercy. Hosea doesn't say, all right, guys, let's double down on the law. He says, no, let's return to the promise made to all those who believe like our father Abraham believed. Friends, in our own unfaithfulness, it's always God's mercy not our merit that secures our hope. It's always God's faithfulness, not our merit which secures our future. His faithfulness, not ours, is what gives us hope as sinners. 
So returning to God always, Old Testament, New Testament, requires trusting his faithfulness. So turning from my unfaithfulness, but also turning from trusting in any faithfulness in me, to trusting in him alone and his faithfulness, his righteousness. If I trust in my own faithfulness, the prophets are going to say, that's like filthy rags. The Apostle Paul quotes Hosea, even in this passage, to display the sovereign goodness of God in election. It's in Romans chapter 9. Paul uses our passage to actually confirm Gentiles as his children. Listen to this passage from Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, note this, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles, as indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not believed, I will call beloved. In the very place where I say to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. To which we should say, hold on, <laughs> wait a second. I, I was paying attention enough to say, how can Paul quote Hosea, who's clearly talking, addressing the northern tribes of Israel, as a reason or the grounds for the inclusion of the Gentiles. How, how is this the case? I don't think Paul is misreading Hosea. I think he's reading Hosea very carefully. And he's seeing when he quotes 10b in 10a that Hosea is looking back not to the covenant at Sinai, but to the covenant with Abraham. Paul recognizes that we are fulfilling what Hosea wrote about in 10a. Because the seed of Abraham includes believers from all nations. Romans chapter 4. It's those who have the faith of Abraham. That's, that's who it is. Paul knew the promise of future mercy in Hosea 1 included us. That we might say, children of the living God. As we are called in the New Testament again and again. Those who are far off have been brought near in mercy. We as Gentiles belong to Yahweh. Israel's God is our God. So this becomes our testimony. We are Gomer and he has shown us mercy. We have been unfaithful and God has been faithful still. Listen how Peter put it. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. How has God shown us unfaithful ones mercy well it's through jesus christ 
It's through our Savior. He died in our place for our spiritual infidelity. He bore God's just wrath against us in our spiritual adultery so that God might welcome us into his family, call us his sons and his daughters, and show us his covenant-keeping love. So when our sin, your sin, my sin, was most personal against God, likened to adultery, his mercy came in a person. The eternal Son of God took on flesh and died in our place for our sins. Our sin is personal. The solution in Jesus is personal. He came for us. He took our place. Unfaithfulness required a personal Savior who would be faithful. And that faithful Israel, that faithful Savior is Jesus. So will you turn from all the lesser lovers who woo you away? Will you turn from your pursuit of them to the only one who pursued you at the cost of his life? Would you, perhaps for the first time, this has been my prayer for you this week, see how morally unacceptable your unfaithfulness is to God. How personal it is. And may you, repulsed by your sin, turn to him who is even now faithfully wooing you with his love. Let me pray. Father God, I do pray for those here this morning who view their sins lightly. Who think... Man, God should just get over it. We all make mistakes. Who think, I've just missed a little, but on the whole, I've done well. Father, would you help each one of us to see the serious, sobering, personal, relationship-rending nature of our sin And would you help us to see through your faithfulness, promised even here in Hosea 1, that you are in the business of reconciliation, of mending, of redeeming, of bringing together again. Father, would you help us to see your covenant-keeping love towards us in Jesus. And may we cling to him by faith. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Andrew. Let's meditate on these truths together. Uh,